pointing fingers at each other, pointing fingers at the devil, pointing fingers eventually at God. And that's where I see America today, blaming, pointing fingers, instead of saying, Jesus, here I am in this congregation, in my backyard, in my own home, confessing my need for you to transform me here. Welcome to the Kindling Fire. My name is Troy Mangum. God is preaching a sermon to the world through people's lives. People's experience, history, and testimonies all point to some amazing attribute of God that you too can experience. I interview revolutionaries, fire starters, and troublemakers. This podcast is here to be a voice of encouragement in your life. A voice that says, with God you can, and with God you will step into the abundant life. So let's get rolling. Today on the Kindling Fire, I have the privilege of having Matt Candless on the show. Uh, thanks for joining, Matt. Sure, I'm glad to be here. So uh, I've actually been eager to talk to Matt for some time, and COVID sort of got in the way. And, uh, and now we're able to finally reconnect. You are an Anglican priest in Washington State, and I got to know about you through a documentary that you and your brother did called Godspeed. And uh, we're going to be getting into some of that documentary. It's, it's, it's such a powerful documentary. But tell us a little bit more about yourself and where you're located in Washington State and anything else you want to share about uh, your family or whoever. Yeah, we live in the middle of the state, a place called Wenatchee. This is my wife and I, and we've got four kids. We've been here about nine years, and prior to that, spent 13 over in Scotland, which was a great adventure, but frankly, I'm happy to be home, and this is the place I'm glad I can say here I am. Yeah, yeah. So, so part of the uh, documentary documents your trip to Scotland and what you experienced there with God, and we're going to be getting into that. But just as a little bit of a precursor, um, why did you go to Scotland? What was the impetus for you going? When I was graduating from seminary, I thought about becoming a church planter. And in the Seattle area, church planting was a big deal at the time. But I had a wise mentor who said, Matt, the American church planting machine is an unhealthy place right now for the church and for you, because you probably think your gifting and ability is going to be able to plant a church, even though you say, God will do it. And I more or less said, no, no, I'm a humble guy. I'm good. And the mentor said, no, you need to be weaned off of your desire to change the world, which is based upon your belief that you can change it in Jesus' name. So um, we took off to Scotland, as it happened to be, because my wife won a scholarship to study at St. Andrews. I was in the same program, uh, did not win the scholarship. She is a better student. So we started the adventure overseas. Wow. So that was, and, and which, you know, looking back all these years later, uh, yeah. what, what do you believe about that advice today? I believe I was saved from a path many people, friends of mine, have walked and failed one of two ways. 
um, either by crashing and burning mm. and destroying themselves and often churches or succeeding and being lost in the ongoing process of having all of it depend upon them. Mm. And both are prisons and both eventually break us and the church. I was given the gift of entering a church that didn't need me, in some ways didn't want me, which is a longer story. And that was a humbling process that stripped me of the things I grew up believing. Yeah, I think the thing that is so powerful about the documentary and um, that is articulated so well is this stark contrast between what I would probably call the pollution of Christianity or the pollution of biblical models with cultural models and not being able to understand the difference until you're out of that culture. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So let's talk a little, let's just jump right in. So as far as like the story about how Godspeed came to be, how did it come to be the documentary? I credit my brother and Danny. Um, Brian, my brother said, Matt, that book you're writing will never get finished. Could I fly out and make a film for three days? And I said, maybe. So I went to work on writing out a film, which was easier. And then Brian and Danny, the filmmakers, showed up. They were jet lagged. They came on a Sunday night. We had to start shooting Monday morning with Tom Wright. He was flying in from another place. So it's 8 a.m. Nobody had slept. And I remember thinking, this can't possibly work. But for the next three days, without any rehearsals, we spoke to people face to face in a way that came together as the story that you can see. And talk to any filmmaker about having one camera, no second takes, and multiple people in multiple villages across Scotland, and you know it's impossible, but it came to pass. Yeah, I think the irony is the name, because that in and of itself is Godspeed. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. I do know filmmakers and that what you described just from a production standpoint and, and to get it to the point where what you see today and what people can see today, you would never, ever know that that's the context in which it was shot. And it was incredibly powerful. Um, yeah, so that was Danny's filmmaking. Yeah. My storytelling. But it was Brian's let's do this that made it happen. So man, it was amazing. So let's so let's dig into some of the meat of kind of the, the message you carry. And one of the things this podcast is about is really people being able to express sort of their testimony of how God has transformed them, changed them, and the message that they kind of carry and 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 care about as a result of things that they've lived through, things that God has showed them and taught them. And so that's where I wanna start with you. And this is the first question. When you um, went over to Scotland uh, at the time, and I would, in based on the documentary, you were kind of unaware personally of things that God wanted to change in you. You thought you were, you were good, like I don't really need to go here to, I, I don't feel like I'm corrupted. I don't feel like I have a wrong perspective. I, like, I feel like I'm pretty sound. 
But then you started to discover, oh, there was some unteasing uh, that God needed to tease some things away from you apart and to really get to the core. And that's kind of a long way to say, what can you identify or things that you can identify that you really started to discover that God needed to untrain you in or you needed to learn that you just didn't see? We arrived pretty well trained and prepared in our heads to know what we weren't supposed to do. Hmm. Eugene Peterson was an awesome mentor, Gordon Fee, Bruce Waltke. All these people began to help us be stripped of our ambition, which when you put it in spiritual categories is very deceitful. So I think I knew in my head what I didn't want to do. I just hadn't practiced it. It wasn't until I began working in the Church of Scotland that I actually had to live out the ascesis or the reality of what I knew in my head, but hadn't practiced in my body or in my church work or in my participation in a community that would hold me to account to the things I had read about and believed in, but had not practiced. So the first time I gave a sermon that I thought was awesome, and it was pretty good, and expected all the handshakes and, hey, thanks, Pastor, and none of those came, was the beginning of my, oh, wow, I really needed some feedback, i.e. praise, to reward the hard work I did. But right away, that didn't happen. And so I was mercifully drawn into not living off of other people's praise or even mild affirmation or reacting to their criticism. There was a whole different way of being in the Scottish parish that was just way healthier than what I knew in American churches. And that is so powerful. I had an experience where ambition couches spiritual goals or spiritual desires uh, was revealed while I was preaching in a pulpit. I was um, preaching something I thought was good. I uh, thought it was helpful. I was in another country and I had asked them to record it because I had big plans. I was going to be the international speaker and I had a blog and I had a podcast and had all these things lined up. And so there was two services. First service I preached was great. Like God moved. It was really nice. Second service, I said, would you record this? And as soon as I got up and spoke, and as soon as I stood up to speak, I knew God was displeased. I absolutely 100% unequivocally knew God knew what I was up to, and he was not going to bless it. And I got through it, but I never wanted to be in that position again um, because it was trying to manufacture a God result with a human ingenuity intelligence skill things that you don't god's not going to bless that you know can you relate to any of that oh entirely but only negatively that is to say (laughs) yeah i didn't have that opportunity temptation i had 13 years of pastoring and preaching to about a hundred people who weren't impressed um nothing was ever recorded I didn't have email. I didn't have a cell phone. I was given the gift of living in the world that Jesus lived in, where it's not about who's following you beyond 
the neighbors you know and who don't care what you said Sunday morning, if they can see me fighting with my wife in the backyard, that matters. If they can see me not treating my kids well, that matters. The hour on Sunday was one part of the 24-7 life in a community that was a fishbowl, a real fishbowl. And that was terrifying at first and then liberating because I stopped trying to perform. I started being faithful to God and to people in a place that's just way different than any pressure that you felt or others feel to project something to the world that's going to change it. No. God, start with me. Change me. And he did that by rescuing me from the temptations you just described. And, and that's a, that was a thing that I remember jumping out in the documentary was the stark contrast of the community itself. Like American society and how we kind of roll and how this community in Scotland was well, well knitted together. Um, and, and, and it just was a different, can you describe a little bit of the differences about your experience of kind of America and that experience of that community and what that kind of forced like that crossroads that put you in? I will describe the difference, but I don't want to conclude that therefore it's not possible in America because I'm finding it right now in America. Right. Yeah. Now. Well, that's the good news, right? <laughs> that's the good news, but I'll talk about, so I came from Seattle, big area, big town, beginning to ride the wave of digital yeah. fame that pastors were tempted by. And I arrived in a village that literally had no cell phone coverage because we were in a valley, um, had no advertising because there's no billboards, had one pub, one church, one school. And because we walked for most of it, you were always face-to-face -face with people. So if I drive my car through the village and I'm speeding, everyone knows the blue Volkswagen van is Pastor Matt's. What is he doing speeding by our children? No action was anonymous. Nothing was something I could project that wasn't actually who I am. Mm. And that was awesome. And that's the way most of the world has lived until recently. And most of the world still lives in the two-thirds world. So we've gotten out of touch with that face-to-face -face accountability, and it's destroying us. And I'm talking way before the COVID crisis. That's just unveiling the problems. But this is what I was given in Scotland and what I'm discovering now in our parish here in Wenatchee. We've been here nine years. We try and do everything face-to-face. -face. Even during COVID, we did not project things. We either met outside or once we could inside with masks. But we knew that our calling was face-to-face -face and to not do anything that looks better online than what is true in person. That's our watchword. So I want to ask you uh, a question about ambition because you, you kind of talked about it. W would you say that you were, well, I'll just be direct. Were you ambitious? Did you feel like you were ambitious when you thought about church planning? In two ways. Um, I both wanted to create churches that were secret sensitive because I've been to Willow Creek and Mars Hill-like in its great preaching 
because I grew up in the same church Mark Driscoll grew up, grew up in. Yeah. And had a real heart for non-Christians in Seattle because we're a pretty secular place. And I began to believe that if I could put the right ingredients together, I could be part of God's solution for the world he loved. Mm. But you begin to see some of the problematic thinking with John 3.16 and how I am now essential to God saving his world. Mm. I would never have said that. I knew better. But everything the church was doing was practicing that way and giving us license to deceive ourselves until we either succeeded and then crashed or failed because we couldn't preach well enough or couldn't gather the right people or get the right music team. So the whole thing was what Eugene saw coming and rescued, not just me, but several of us who were students who he said, save yourself and the church a lot of pain and do something ambitious in a different way. And that's where he began to help my ambition, I pray, become more like Christ's. Go be subversive and transformed in a community where your own sanctification matters more than your ambitions for saving them. Because that's when you'll start justifying stuff in yourself that you should not justify because you've got better numbers, better converts, better something. That's what was exposed. And praise God, because I was heading for trouble. Wow. Um, you talk about something called the pace of being known. This is something you talk about in the documentary. And, and, it's, and I've heard it called the um, God moves at three miles an hour, <laughs> you know, or, or something of that, you know, like Jesus walked and, and that was kind of the pace of walking. Can you talk about what you mean by that? So I hope people don't watch God speed and take the message, just slow down. If you can slow down and chill out, you'll be good. Mm. That's not the gospel. That is a gospel being preached by some Christians and non-Christians, but it's not the gospel. God's speed is the pace of being known. That means living in such a way where other people know you, God knows you, your church knows you, and you are being transformed. So I don't want to make you be tempted by greener grass in Scotland or some other parish. I don't want to tempt you to think, I just need to do less. The reality is sometimes I'm flying on wings like eagles. Sometimes I am running and getting weary, but I'm also walking and not growing faint. And at any of those speeds, if I'm staying connected to my wife and my children, my friends, my staff, my congregation, my mentors, then I'm not at risk of justifying behavior or ideas or ambitions that are not of Christ. And I say that to not just pastors, that's to any person who wants to be fully human in Christ. You can't do it alone. You've got to be in communion with others. They're the ones that help us be true to who we are in him and not tempted by the devil's clever ways. Do you believe that God led you on a path downward? And then God maybe changed the direction of that, but initially it was downward. The reason I hesitate to say yes is because I hope you don't think that I've 
hit the bottom, and now there's a rise. Mm. Um, I believe that all of us in Christ, following Philippians 2, are called on a downward path our entire life on earth, which is what our baptism symbolizes, and our death will finally bring to pass, at which point we will resurrect. So yes, there is a path of downward mobility that any Christian must be following to be in Christ. But don't expect the rebound this side of the grave. Mm. I'm not saying we don't practice resurrection. And there's lots of good stories and joy and kingdom appearances. But I would say all of us are on a path of downward mobility in Christ. Yeah, I think that uh, that's one view downward. I think another analogy would be like an onion. It's a, it's a, this is not a word, a naked, a naked, becoming more and more naked. <laughs> I was going to make up a word, nakedification, but basically it's yeah, like yeah. the layers and the more layers and the more layers and the more layers until you are at your true essence before God and others. And there really is, that's it. There really is no more emperors. There, there's no more things to cover up. It's just, Hey, this is, who I truly am before God and, and man. I like your word nakedification <laughs> because originally in baptisms, both infants and adults had to be naked to be baptized. You were revealed fully for who you are so that as your naked self in Christ, there'd be nobody to please, nobody to try to win their approval from. That's why Jesus, right after his baptism, went into the desert to be tempted by the devil, to resist the temptation to prove himself. And I want to be all about helping people recover their baptism or meet Jesus and get baptized, Mm. to be naked from the start and then be in a transparent community where it doesn't take years and years of the onion being stripped away. Yes, that's happening in our sanctification. But from the get-go, to be free in Christ as his glorious children, as Paul puts it, that's the starting point. Not It's also the finishing point in Christ. But that's where things begin. And if our identity doesn't start there, or our goal in church start there, there's going to be a host of other temptations that distract us. And that's what's happening around the church today. You know, you, you spoke of the, the, the story of, of sort of the, the lack of affirmation for something that you felt like you needed affirmation for. Were there other relationships or circumstances that God coordinated that kind of culminated to where you got this aha moment like, okay, God is up to something far different than what I expected my life trajectory would be, right? Where you were like, aha, okay. Like, okay, God, I, I'm starting to get it. Do you, can you account a circumstance or a person or a relationship? Or? Yeah, yes and no. Um, there was a cumulative revelation happening over years mm. that really happened in my correspondence with Eugene. Eugene and I wrote for about 20 years. Wow. And he was gradually spiritually directing me to what I'm describing today. It's also true that there was a bit of an aha when Eugene 
and Jan visited and sat in our home. And the first thing I said was, Eugene, um, how do you think I'm doing? And his first question was, how's your Sabbath? And I was like, my Sabbath? It's an Old Testament rule that I sometimes apply. In that chair, as I realized, even to the guy who was trying to teach us to be subversive, I was trying to prove myself with ways that he would balk at, I realized I had not learned what he was teaching. Paul McKeown also joined me in that room and with Eugene, is a fellow pastor in Scotland. And we committed to start keeping Sabbath from that day forward to begin to rest in Christ as God's children before we were pastors in his kingdom advancing it. In fact, that's not what pastors do, by the way. We are the ones who enable the priesthood of all believers to be at rest in Christ, working for the Lord of the Sabbath. But it was that day that Paul and I began to practice what Eugene preached in even deeper ways. And that was about 12 years ago. Wow. So you transitioned from that environment back to the United States, back to Washington. And, and so with the revelation and, and teaching and training that God and your mentors and others were, were providing, what did you face kind of coming back and thinking about, will this work in America? You know, can people connect in America? Can people live this way in America? Like what, what, where was, where was your head at that time? The church that interviewed me here, Trinity Church, asked about what my belief in ministry was. Mm. And they actually flew out to Scotland to interview not just me, but they spent a week interviewing the whole parish, which was a transparent interview. I bet. <laughs> um, <laughs> because they knew it wasn't going to be just getting a new pastor to change things. They had to think differently about what it meant to be here in Wenatchee and to be a part of a parish, not just a church of like-minded Christians who at least for a while think the same way. Um, and there's another few stories there. When they interviewed the whole parish and when I had them read Eugene's Under the Unpredictable Plant, which is a book that every church needs to read to understand what a pastor is meant to do and not do, they said, wow, this is not what we were expecting, but what we need. And I said, yes, we need an honest first date because if I'm gonna move from Scotland back to America, I need to partner with a team that like me is confessing our sins, owning our wrong ambitions and trying to have the spirit name the right ones to help transform us and maybe transform others who see what Christ is doing among us. So it was because of that hope and our mutual confessing of our lack of God's speed in Christ that I was like, sign me up. Even though there was a lot of complexities and a lot of things that would have maybe said no to coming here. The good news is nine years in, it's happening. And it's taken a while and there's been pain, but there's now a group of Christians 
who consider ourselves the body of Christ in this locale, who are not pointing fingers at other Christians for what they're doing wrong, much less the world for what it's doing wrong, but starting with a plank in our own eye that we are confessing continually to be transformed. If that's what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, sign me up because I need help. And we own that transformation together. That's why I love being back in America and I love even the crisis we're currently facing because I have great hope for what I see happening in the body. I'm pointing behind me. Uh, this is the church building we rent, but I should be pointing to all the faces. If I can make a Godspeed too, you would see the people who have been transformed by this story. That's why I'm here. And it's why I feel free in Christ. So uh, immediately, I kind of have the, the, the burning question about what about the unsaved? Like, how does the unsaved factor into this experience that you're talking about? People that don't know Christ, what does that, how does that play out in what you're talking about? So something fun happened during COVID. We had to leave the building and we started backyard churches in 16 different homes for two purposes. One, we thought that God was actually helping us leave the building to engage our neighbors in ways that we had never done before. What we began to do were are called Godspeed Bible studies, which is a method of visualizing the Bible like a film that invites the whole circle to be film directors and to guess what happens next or to describe what they see in John's gospel. As this began happening in people's backyards, people started leaning over the fence and saying, what are you doing? Why are you laughing? Why are you having fun? And when they said they were reading the Bible, the neighbors couldn't believe it, came over the fence and joined right in. We grew during COVID in our backyards in ways that we had never grown in the safety of this building. That's the new thing that has now begun to happen post-COVID with people wondering afresh about Jesus and not just being in backyards. We did do that for once a month that just ended last week. But now people are saying, we don't just want the backyards. We don't just want Jesus and the Bible. We want to learn what you do inside that strange building with preaching and praying and singing and communion and baptism. What are those things? So my belief is that God had to renew our church so that we could be in a healthy enough place to be laughing in John's gospel and pointing non-Christians to Jesus who are now knocking on the door to get inside the church. Wow. You know, I had a, uh, I was praying with some friends and uh, I got this sort of word picture about the catching of the fish with the net, you know, that Jesus said, hey, throw your net on the other side and they drew all these fish in. And the, and the word picture was that the net were people. And if you had a broken net, meaning there wasn't an integ in, uh, integral relationships among the people, we all pray for fish. We all pray for the unsaved to come to know Jesus. And then they come in, and if those relationships are not well knit, 
like a net would be, they're going to fall through and they're going to fall through with the fence. They're going to fall through with the neglect. They're going to fall through with a lot of things. And that much of what God is doing with communities is building a good net. And it's not that he doesn't want people to get saved. He doesn't want this, those that get saved to be uh, mistreated and, and poorly discipled and neglected. <laughs> and so I, it sounds like your community over time has really built strong nets. Yes. Yes. And I am still ambitious to see revival. Mm. Um, but I've seen the church's unhealth that is not ready to receive the revival God wants to bring. Mm. But in Scotland, where I was a part of a old, boring, not very exciting church, which is a church plant from the year 410. Method Church was planted in the year 410 so that when I arrived in 2007, I realized, wait a minute, how did a church plant last this long? When in America, our church plants, if they survive, almost always break up in their teenage years or probably their 20-somethings. What did they got right? They had built, no. They had let God build his kingdom and the net that was their community. So that when I did show up, and because I am an evangelist, began to help people come to faith. Once they came to faith, they stayed in the flock. They didn't move on to greener grass. There was a healthy net at Methlick. And so the church went from about 30 or 40 to over seven or eight years. We were about 100. And most of those were new converts who had found the church as the healthiest, best place in the parish for becoming alive in Christ. I believe that's what's happening right now in America to help churches be revealed as not healthy or named as healthy refuges from the chaos that has always been life out in the world. But the church has looked too much like it. We're trying to become a healthy place. And as we do that, people will find Christ and health and the Holy Spirit here. That's our prayer. Yeah. Well, I want to end with this last question about um, uh, this uh, phrase in the Bible. So in Genesis, it, you know, God came walking in the garden and said, where are you? And, uh, and I would like to understand kind of your thoughts about um, how this book you're referring to back backyard pilgrim and how that kind of helps people connect to where God has placed them to live with the people that God has placed them to live with instead of always looking and longing for something as you call the greener grass. What's your thoughts on that? Troy, when people first saw Godspeed, they started saying, Matt, we just got to move to Scotland. I was like, oh, no, that's, that's not what the film was saying. So the book was to say, don't be a pilgrim to Scotland. Go into your own backyard. God's first question to Adam and Eve was, where are you? And don't over-metaphor that. That's a geographical question for them to name where they are. 
And of course, where they are is hiding behind a tree, having listened to a serpent who deceived them and destroyed them. And had they said, here we are, here I am, there might have been a better next step to pointing fingers at each other, pointing fingers at the devil, pointing fingers eventually at God. And that's where I see America today, blaming, pointing fingers, instead of saying, Jesus, here I am in this congregation, in my backyard, in my own home, confessing my need for you to transform me here. There is no greener grass. Heaven and earth are yours. The world is yours and everything you've made. So I don't want people to fantasize about better churches, better spouses, better missions. I want them to receive who God has already given them and learn to live at God's speed in Christ where they already are. That's the helpful question God first asked when we first got lost. And I believe we need to be found where we already are. Hmm. You know, I think that it's been my experience that there are some that are, uh, can answer the question. And I would say most cannot. Because to answer it honestly is to confront maybe an image of God that rejects them or an image of God that is disappointed or whatever it is, but it's not the accurate biblical image of a loving father to the prodigal son running towards them in love. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that men and women, they struggle with that question because it's like it reveals the greater fear not just that of where they are, but the response to that, God's response to where they are. Yes. You know, and, uh, and, and the reason I was so excited and, and um, just felt compelled to have you on the show was, was I think that you represent sort of this um, missionary of some sorts. But it's not a missionary in traditional sense, in my view. It's more of a missionary of like the kingdom of God. Like it's like we all think we have it. And then when you see a contrast, like we saw in the documentary and the, what you're trying to do in churches, it's such a it's different. It's it's really different. And it's putting relationships and brothers and sisters and the familyhood of God, sort of, and God Himself sort of in the center of it. And it's just very unusual. I, um, I guess I'll just ask one question to, to kind of end it off is that, you know, the Bible says you'll know a tree by its fruit, right? And so you're kind of come to this discovery. And my question would be, what, what other, what kind of fruit can you say, this is God fruit? What I've learned, how I've learned it, and what I and talking about backyard pilgrim in the documentary, here are what I would consider God fruit from this kind of approach. You would need to ask our <laughs> congregation. Yeah. Um, because just like Godspeed, I hope wasn't about me, except that I was confessing some things. What I'm seeing in the people who are bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in troubled times, 
Yeah, very I much. See love, joy, peace, not fear, patience, not hurry, gentleness, goodness, self-control. That's the fruit of the spirit I'm seeing in the body. And I'm just bearing witness to what I'm seeing. Hmm. I also want to say that what you just said about not just God's question, where are you? But the way he came to Adam and Eve, as he always does. Remember, he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And he wasn't shouting angrily, where are you? Like the father in the prodigal son story, he was coming to the prodigal son's grand, great-great-grandparents trying to pursue them. But because they believed in a twisted image of God, now that they've eaten the fruit, they couldn't receive him as he was. Hmm. I want to recover these old, old stories. You say we're doing something different? We are not. We are simply recovering what always was and who God always is. But America has lost touch with in recent years. I mean, the last like 50. The last two have been particularly bad. But they're just revealing the last 50. So that's what I'm bearing witness to and marveling at and continuing to confess my temptations about. Yeah, that's powerful. So if, if people want to, they're, they're hungry. You know, you talk about the Bible being, you know, make, you know, be salty, be light. You know, I, that's what I, my experience was when I watched the documentaries, the saltiness, like I want some of this. I know that I am missing this aspect of relationship, this depth of relationship, this commitment to relationship in God's people and in a community. Where would they go? How could they find more about, you know, Backyard Pilgrim and in, in the film? The first thing I would say is go to your current congregation, your current friends. Um, if you learn one thing from God's speed, it's press into your relationships, spend more time with your family and your friends. So yeah. you've already got what you need. <laughs> in fact don't read more books or watch more films um just take more time to be with those god has asked you to love that's the first place to go yeah man um you're referring to the books in the film that's all at livegodspeed.org and it is fun to watch the half hour film and then take a half hour don't watch it alone Watch it with somebody you love and take the second half hour, make it a date night or a small group thing to talk about what is the film stirring inside of me that this spirit wants me to address so I can become more like Christ. Not abstractly, but in my relationships. I hope you don't go knocking on doors like the film does. Start it at home. You can also then read the book that I wrote so you weren't tempted to go elsewhere. And that's called Backyard Pilgrim. That's a 40-day pilgrimage in your own backyard, in your current relationships, to live at God's speed in Christ. And what's fun about the book is you don't just read the book. You only read one page a day. And you have to walk for 15 minutes a day to process what you've read and to answer God's question, where are you, with, here I am in my neighborhood. Here I am in my marriage. Here I am in my church. 
It's practicing the here I am's that we fail to give God. And so instead hide in our ambitions or our temptations, we're still hiding behind that tree. And the father is saying, kids, where are you? Learn how to say, here I am. And learn how Jesus is the one who's going to help you say it in the spirit. This isn't a new legalism. This is a new freedom in Christ. That's my prayer. Yeah. Well, one of the things I would ask um, to, to end the show is this. If you would just say a quick prayer um, for the listeners, uh, just based on the conversation we've had in your heart for, for those to really discover what you are talking about. Thank you, Troy. I would love to pray. Lord, there are groans that words cannot express. And first, I join anyone who, through pain or suffering or confusion, can only moan or groan. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that because of your own life on earth, in your own being in the flesh, in your own now ascended to the Father as one of us, you know exactly what it's like to suffer, to be in pain, and to trust your Father for the resurrection that is to come. Lord, I pray that your resurrection would be discovered in fresh ways in your church. So that instead of running to a new book or a new strategy or a new place, we would simply return to you and be found where we already are in Christ. We lift this prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Matt. It is a real honor to have the conversation. And I, I, uh, as a brother from across the United States, I bless your congregation. I, I, I bless what you're doing. And uh, it's just, it's really making a difference, not only where you're at, but, but other places. So thank you so much for sharing your heart. Sure. Thank you for your love for God, your love for his church, and your love for people who have not yet met Jesus and heard the good news. I share your heart and your yeah. prayer. So Thank you for the work that you're doing. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to the podcast. Hey, if you did like it, it would be really helpful if you want to send us a review over on iTunes. That would be really cool. And if you want to connect, go over to Instagram, search Troy Mangum or The Kindling Fire, and we can connect there, and that would be a great way to kind of stay in touch. I am doing a YouTube channel, so we do video formats of these podcasts, and we'd love to have you look there. Okay, guys, until next time. Be awesome.